the public has just been lost in the sea of deceit and dishonesty from, from military leadership and several administrations. Reporter Alex Horton has been covering the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and the aftermath of that withdrawal. That includes a drone strike last month that went very wrong. It all started when a U.S. drone picked up a white Toyota Corolla, leaving what intelligence analysts thought was a ISIS safe house. And as it was moving through the city, the analysts and commanders who were watching it became more and more convinced that this was a threat. The U.S. military believed that this vehicle was carrying an ISIS bomb and that they needed it to strike. And the time for that missile to fire from the drone to the car was about 30 seconds. And in those 30 seconds, just in the last closing seconds before the missile struck, in the drone feed, three kids emerge right before the explosion happens. It turned out that this wasn't an ISIS threat. It was an aid worker transporting containers of water for his family. The strike killed 10 civilians, including seven children. And today, the military is finally facing questions about that drone strike in Afghanistan and the many, many other mistakes the U.S. made during 20 years of war. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, September 29th. This week on Capitol Hill, lawmakers are questioning top military leaders about what went wrong in Afghanistan. They're talking to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Mark Milley, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, and the head of U.S. Central Command, General Kenneth McKenzie. And today, we're talking to our military reporter, Alex Horton, about that hearing and whether anyone will be held accountable for all those years of missteps. The hearings on the, the Hill today and yesterday are about the conduct and the strategy of the 20-year war in Afghanistan. As you can expect, you know, in this kind of political environment, you know, the, the partisan lines were drawn very starkly, and that continues today with the, the House hearing about whose fault it was on how the war ended last month. Here's what I've learned so far. Number one, the President of the United States lied to the American people about the advice that you gave to him about the military judgment that you provided for him. I think you've all testified to that effect now repeatedly. Secondly, During the Trump years, as the Afghan government and the Afghan army racked up one failure after another, the Republicans seem far less interested in this topic, holding one public hearing a year. You know, we all saw the pictures and videos of people falling from evacuation aircraft, a bomb exploded at the airport gate that killed 13 troops and at least 170 Afghans. Um, so a lot of the, the focus has been on how that operation went, but also who's to blame for the messy exit. You know, Republicans were quick to draw blame on Biden and, and said how, you know, he chose to leave on, on you know, the Taliban's terms, put troops at risk. They say he rejected uh, his commander's advice to leave a residual force of 2,500 uh, in the country. Uh, and Democrats said, you know, the, the, the failures and, and this end was inevitable and, and leaving 
any kind of force would just prolong what was going to happen anyway, which was the total collapse of the government and the military in Afghanistan. Well, for the people who were actually testifying, what did they say? What was their answer to that question of who is to blame for so much of how the withdrawal played out? The delayed refreshing moment uh, yesterday and today was the full acknowledgement of all the reasons why Afghanistan collapsed the way it did last month that had its roots going back to 2001. For 20 years, generals have attended hearings. They've spoken at the Pentagon and, and presidents have gotten up there in the Rose Garden and talked about how we're turning a corner in Afghanistan, how the war is going to be different the next year and the next operation and the next mission and the next defensive. 2011 was a real turning point. But we are at a crucial turning point. I think it's possible that by the end of this year, we will have turned a corner. Now, last night, I gave a speech in which I said that we have turned a corner. So I wouldn't suggest to you that we have turned the corner. And it never came to pass. So what was refreshing to hear was that the sort of uh, concession that came with that. You know, the public has just been lost in the sea of deceit and and dishonesty from from military leadership and several administrations. That was one thing that that happened. All the generals up there, they all said that they wanted to keep at least 2,500 troops in there. And they made that recommendation to President Biden at the end of last year. And that advice continued through this year. What they didn't explain, and I don't think they even attempted to explain, is what that would have done to change the outcome that we all saw. There was no sort of, you know, going back and saying, well, I I think that this would have turned the tide that wasn't turned in the last 20 years. You know, no one up there really defended what could have been different other than more Americans getting killed and more Afghan civilians getting killed. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because they all argued they wanted to keep people there. But the reality of the situation is President Trump agreed in Doha with the Taliban to have a conditions-based withdrawal. And after the Biden administration agreed, U.S. troops were leaving on August 31st, and that was the deadline. The Taliban vowed to attack them if they broke that deadline. Um, so that was the reality that these military leaders were in, and someone's of a contradiction. Where they said, we should have kept troops there, but they had no answer to what would have gone on and what would have changed to support the Afghan military had that support continued. So it sounds like the testimony from these military leaders is somewhat different from what we've heard from President Biden, that they were telling him in advance of the withdrawal that it is important or probably a good idea to leave some troops there, though that isn't what we've heard from Biden. Yeah, you know, President Biden said a few days into the evacuation that he never discussed this option of keeping at least 2,500 troops in Afghanistan. So no no one told, your military advisors did not tell you, no, we should just keep 2,500 troops, it's been a stable situation for the last several years. We can do that. We can continue to do that. No, no one said that to me that I can recall. So in, in testimony, all three of the leaders said that they presented these options uh, as recommendations going back as far as December. I recommended that we maintain 2,500 troops in Afghanistan. And I also recommended earlier in the fall of 2020 that we maintain 4,500 at that time. Those are my personal views. I also have a view that the withdrawal of those forces would lead inevitably to the collapse of the Afghan military forces and eventually the Afghan government. They 
continued and stayed consistent with that recommendation all the way through almost to the end of the evacuation where they said they don't foresee any possibility that staying past the 31st of August wouldn't invite more attacks from the Taliban and ISIS-K and also just not get out that many more American citizens and uh, Afghans who helped the U.S. After, you know, everyone had left Afghanistan, the generals went back to the White House and said they don't recommend anyone stay past the 31st. After the break, what the military has to say about the civilians killed in last month's drone strike and how they knew for years that things were not looking good in Afghanistan. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. So... What do you think was a revelation that surprised you from this testimony and what you heard these military leaders say? There was one part uh, where each of the leaders, you know, that they were sort of frank in their assessments that reporters, analysts, experts have been thinking about for years, is this sort of acknowledgement of of the shortcomings of the military-led mission in Afghanistan. One of the striking things that Secretary Austin said was how they, they didn't have a full grasp or understanding of how well the Taliban arrived in local communities. They cut deals with leaders and they really ingrained themselves in the politics uh, of villages, large and small, away from the population centers that the Afghan military was focused on. The Doha agreement had a significant uh, impact on the on the morale of the of the troops. Uh, but I would I would say that's compounded by weak leadership uh, corruption in the government, and you know the fact that uh, the Taliban made a concerted effort to uh, to really reach out to uh, provincial leaders uh, and uh, and convince them that the Taliban was going to be in charge, and so they might as well side up with them early on. And I th- I think that speaks to a couple things. I think it speaks to the shortcoming of what the U.S. military can do on the ground. That's not conducting airstrikes and and fighting battles, you know, in the valleys. You know, once you leave that sort of operation that the military is very good at, they're not so good at taking the temperature of how civilians and leaders in those communities feel. Mm -hmm. That is also an indictment of how the State Department and the diplomatic mission really took a backseat to the military mission. And the, the generals have been saying for years of how they will conduct counterinsurgency. They will, they will win the hearts and minds of of civilians. They had no ability, and I don't think they respected the complexity of Afghan communities that have seen war for decades, even before the Americans arrived. That they wanted it all to end, and many failures of imagination plague the Pentagon for the last twenty years. One of them was not respecting that. This war is not a binary choice of U.S. and Afghan government good and Taliban bad. There are not many Afghans who would agree with that characterization. 
What did you make of the fact that there was this pretty frank acknowledgement from some of these military leaders that that they weren't thinking about this the right way from the very beginning, that there were a lot of assumptions that were made that were wrong? I think I was saying, welcome to the party. Our colleague, Craig Whitlock, just wrote a book about this, about how privately diplomats and generals and aid workers and others saw the the failures mounting for 20 years, year after year, growing in the sense that they would be insurmountable at any point. But publicly, all of these people said how much progress was coming, how much the, the Afghan military was growing in proficiency and they'll be able to stand on their own. None of it was true. And either lying to the American public or lying to themselves, they extended this farce that, you know, U.S. military might could could prop up a essentially a tribal society where illiteracy reigns, you know, um, and one of the central parts of why the country fell that these leaders have finally acknowledged was something that was clear from the very beginning, that if you impose a technology and logistics heavy military structure that the U.S. said, we do we do war this way, the Afghans should do war this way. It didn't take, you know, Afghanistan rejected the U.S. way of war like an organ because it did not make any sense for a country plagued with illiteracy that did not have any infrastructure whatsoever to support an army of contractors, you know, the latest technology and helicopters and vehicles to keep running on their own. There was no way it was ever going to work. And once the contractors left, and this was an important admission from Secretary Austin and others, that once that support was pulled and those contractors departed Afghanistan, the whole house of cards fell. And this was indicative in, in July when when General McKenzie visited Kabul and you know he spoke to reporters, including me, about this initiative to fly out vehicles and aircraft that were damaged and broken during the Taliban offensive, they would fly it to a third country, repair it, and fly all that stuff back. I asked General McKenzie, what does that tell you about how challenging this effort really is? How does that not show signs of breakage if you all of a sudden took that away? And he didn't have a good answer then, but he had a good answer yesterday that everything melted away once our support left. And, you know, it was always a mirage that they would be able to sustain that on their own. As we built that army and all of its components, I think that one error we may have made uh, over time is we made them too dependent on technology, too dependent on our capabilities. Uh, We didn't take in the cultural aspects perhaps as much as we should have, and we mirror imaged, to put it simply. I think that's a big lesson. We're going to have to take a hard look at it. And the result is when you pull contractors, you pull troops. That, I think, is one of many contributing factors to the rapid collapse. But, you know, even as it seems like we're finally having more honest discussions around the mistakes that happened at the beginning of the U.S. occupation in Afghanistan or the failures that happened along the way, I mean, those mistakes are still happening now, like that drone strike that killed seven children last month. Did that attack come up at all in those hearings? And what did military leaders have to say about this most recent mistake? This did come up in the hearing. Um, it, It came up you know, in in the shadow of a lot of other kind of partisan fighting, General McKenzie, who oversaw the operation, took full responsibility for that strike. He has yet to say what kind of responsibility that will bear out. And one of the biggest 
questions that all three military leaders couldn't answer uh, about everything they discussed from the conduct of the war to the evacuation to the drone strike is what accountability and responsibility actually means, because no one has been disciplined over any of it. And what do you think that tells you, the fact that there wasn't discussion around who is going to be held responsible for the fact that the U.S. killed 10 civilians in this strike? There's sort of a a cliche saying in in military and defense circles that it's absolutely true, which is uh, a private will be punished more for losing a rifle than a general will for losing a war. And there's a whole lot of generals who lost the Afghanistan war. And they haven't been punished at all, and they haven't suffered any repercussions in their careers. And, And in fact, the opposite is true. You know, they've gone on to enrich themselves on defense contractor boards, speaking engagements, tell all books. This is something where generals left the field of battle in Afghanistan with nothing to show for it except dead Americans, dead Afghans, and billions of dollars in the U.S. money being spent. And they leverage that into personal success. So it it remains unclear if anyone will ever answer for the way that the war was conducted across several administrations, across numerous commanders that all misled the American people on, on how the war was going. But it is also telling that there wasn't much appetite to discuss who would be responsible for this drone strike that killed 10 civilians including seven children. So this is a pattern to where I don't think anyone with any kind of responsibility over the conduct of the war in Afghanistan then and now will ever face consequences for the bad decisions and the the flawed strategies that they oversaw for, for two decades. Alex Horton covers the military for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Renny Svornovsky. It was produced by Jordan Marie Smith, Emma Talkoff, and Ariel Plotnik. The kind of reporting that we do is only possible because of our subscribers. If that's you, thank you so very much. And if not, I hope you'll consider subscribing. Right now, you can try The Post for just a dollar a week, which gets you unlimited access to everything we publish. Learn more at WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.